0: Well, thanks everybody for joining us. Um, my name is Owen Higgins. This is the Flashpoint Podcast. Um, kind of a a, a a wonky schedule this week. Uh, we're doing we're, we're we're doing Thursday and Friday. So um, if you were if you were missing us on on Tuesday, uh, we are here. We are still going to do our normal two. We're just switching things up a little bit um, uh, today. I am joined by Dr. Stephen Thrasher, we're going to talk about the pandemic, we're going to talk about inequality, we're going to talk about his forthcoming book, we're going to talk about all kinds of stuff. Um, So I think uh, maybe just uh, introduce Stephen here in a second, but you know, anybody who has been kind of paying attention to the way uh, that the... The pandemic has been kind of surging up again, and we're seeing people uh, falling ill and dying at, at pretty high rates, um, you know, relative to what we had. Obviously, we're not at the March 2022 spike, um, but it is it is creeping back up. You know, I was looking at the map yesterday, uh, the map of cases, and, um, you know, I noticed that it really seems like it's getting highest, like, like the problem uh, is worst uh, it, in areas of the country uh, which have, you know, like like lower income uh, residents, lower income people, kind of a pandemic of the poor, I guess you could say. Uh, that's, that's certainly part of uh, Dr. Thrasher's argument here. So why don't I introduce him, and then we can talk a little bit about the book, and then we can talk a little bit about the pandemic, and then uh, take some calls. So Stephen Thrasher is the Daniel Renberg Chair of Social Justice in Reporting at the Medill School of Journalism. He's a professor uh, in Northwestern University Institute of Sexual and Gender Minority Health and Wellbeing, being uh, and he's also the author of the book, The Viral Underclass, The Human Toll When Inequality and Disease Collide, that's available for pre-order now and it's out next week wherever books are sold. Stephen, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, you know, we've been we've been chatting online for a long time. It's nice to finally uh, talk, uh, quote unquote, in person. Uh, so thanks for being here. Uh, you know, what, what can you tell us a little bit about this book, about, the, you know, the genesis of it and, and how you kind of came to have interest in this topic?
1: Uh, thanks so much for having me, Owen. It is nice to finally talk. Um, not exactly IRL, but, but close. Um, this book started at a kind of different points in my life. Um, I started having an interest in writing about HIV about 10 years ago. And at the time I was a staff writer at the village voice and I was writing extensively about gay rights, but mostly along two axes at the time, um, the fight for same sex marriage, which was happening, in states uh, across the country before it started to be taken up by the federal government, federal courts, and also the fight for LGBT open military service. Um, And I started, I've I've had a pretty big evolution on those issues over the years, but I started realizing those two uh, issues alone were were going to leave so many matters of injustice off the table for gay people. Um, And somewhat by accident, I, I went on a background reporting assignment and talked to a leader of the LGBT center in the Bronx, and I started getting some insight into things that young people were dealing with um, with HIV in that community, uh, and realized that HIV and AIDS was the place that that you could still really clearly see all the inequalities in, uh, particularly gay and and bi and trans people, um, but also you know young queer people of color, and and so I started investigating a little bit then. Um, But the next sort of iteration of the book took off in 2014 when an editor at BuzzFeed asked me to look into a story of a young man named Michael Johnson, whose screen name was Tiger Mendingo. That's how he was known on using some social media apps. And he um, was being charged with transmitting HIV or exposing HIV to other people. And he was facing life in prison. And at the time, I had no idea that people could be prosecuted for disease in general. I didn't know much about it. Um, certainly not that, that saying someone had transmitted HIV or exposed someone to HIV could send someone to prison for life. And, um, so I started reporting on that story and you were talking about just now the maps that you saw. Um, I I started reporting on that story in early 2014 and went to St. Louis or just outside of St. Louis to interview this person and learn about the case that was happening with them. Um, And then I wrote a story and was waiting for the trial and went back to New York. But very nearby, Michael Brown was killed by Ferguson police officer uh, Derek Chauvin in Ferguson, not so far away. And so I ended up getting sent back to go cover that story because I had some familiarity with St. Louis by then. And as you were saying the maps, when when I asked people who worked in HIV what I should be looking for in Ferguson because I wasn't familiar with that town just north of St. Louis in St. Louis County, I found out that Ferguson had this high rate of HIV and AIDS, and I saw the same. You know, I saw the maps. The maps for police violence, the maps of police uh, for for police violence, the maps of black poverty, and the maps of HIV diagnoses, which is a virus that um, moves into people, and then AIDS, which HIV should never move on into AIDS because there's medication to deal with it. But when people don't get it, it it becomes AIDS. All those maps were sort of the same. You could see them all in Ferguson overlapping with each other. Um, So I spent the next, I've actually been reporting on on Michael's case in St. Louis for many years now, since 2014, Um, and a story developed around Michael who got sentenced to 30 years in prison for HIV transmission. Everything about his trial sort of illustrated every disaster you could imagine possible in Black America and queer America, uh, an enormous misunderstanding of, of science and how viruses move and a reification of this false information being um, made legitimate sort of in the eyes of the public because it was, uh, you know, it was uh, a court was stamping it. Um, and I followed his story for years. Eventually, his sentence got overturned. He, he served six years in prison, but um, o- only six out of the 30, 31, he was originally supposed to be sentenced to. Um, and so was he, so, was he
0: acquitted or was he just released?
1: He was, um, his conviction was overturned because and I, I don't want to give it all away because it's in the book, but, his, um, up, yeah. uh, but his conviction was overturned and because of prosecutorial misconduct and, um, some other matters. And so then eventually he, um, uh, took a reduced sentence, uh, plea bargain to just not have to go through a trial again. Uh, if you or your listeners are at all familiar with the case of, um, of uh, uh curtis flowers you know who got who got uh the, the podcast in the dark was about who kept getting prosecuted over and over again like when a conviction is returned the prosecutor can go back at it again um so he took a uh plea bargain in the second round and then then in which he did not uh admit guilt um and then he got out at, after a total of about six years instead of 30 31 which he was originally going to have to serve So that was kind of the backbone of what I was working on thinking would become a book um, in February, March of 2020, when the coronavirus pandemic broke out. And that was sort of the third iteration of what became the book. um, When everything started shutting down, I had not started pitching my book to publishers. And I kind of reconceived it and moved around this phrase called the viral underclass, which I'd come across in reporting about Michael's story, which the, the first person who wrote it, I heard use it in a way that he, he used it in a way to talk about, his name is Sean Strube, to talk about when people are diagnosed with HIV, they're put in this different legal category around an immutable characteristic. And so they're placed in this kind of viral underclass. And then I heard activists using it in sort of a different way. Um, and I built upon that to think about why is it that we see the same kinds of people over and over again becoming infected with viruses? And we're seeing it again right now, just the story in the Washington Post this morning. It was the first I'd seen of these statistics yet around monkeypox that we've known for a while that it's almost entirely men who have sex with men. But within U.S. data, it looks like two-thirds, about a third are white people and about two-thirds are non-white. So we're seeing a kind of typical um, racial disparity and and class disparity and how this virus is playing out. Um, So I use this phrase of our underclass to both start kind of rewrite the book or, or change course as I was thinking of a book in the beginning of 2020 to both sort of build on things that I'd been seeing with HIV, which intercepted with hepatitis and other pathogens I've studied. Um, and then to use that as a framework for reporting on the coronavirus pandemic. Um, and some things I predicted where they would go and some things I did not know where they would go, including I write very personally about the death of someone who was close to me who died of COVID. Um, And so that's kind of how the book came together. It started in writing about HIV and then it expanded to write about COVID. And I imagine the paperback edition will probably have an update with monkeypox. Um, But one of the things that I found, I'm not a virologist by training, although I I work with them a lot and I um, use their research a lot and I, I use it to kind of think about the social structures of things is that regardless of the characteristics of any particular virus or pathogen, and sometimes they, they operate, if you're you know a biologist and studying them, these viruses are operating in quite different ways in the human body and their time scale, the way they transmit. And yet, because of the social organization of our society, these different viruses are, are affecting the same populations. You know, COVID, Novel coronavirus is respiratory, HIV moves primarily through, um, Uh, secretions and and bodily fluids, Uh, monkeypox moves primarily through touch, Uh, hepatitis moves primarily through uh, secretions and fluids, and yet they're like, they keep harming the same people that our society makes disposable and deems um, able to run over and puts their bodies in the paths of these pathogens and makes it so that their life circumstances will even become worse once they become infected. So that's kind of the basis of the book.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, um, it, and if you're just joining us, uh, my guest is Stephen Thrasher, uh, author of the new book uh, *Viral Underclass*, which is out next week. So, I wanted to ask you about. Um, I, I just uh, it, this is just like kind of like an aside comment that you made, but I thought it was really interesting. You know, you were saying people get HIV and you don't get AIDS. Uh, you know, uh, like like or you shouldn't, right? Yeah. If, uh, you know, you should be able to get the drugs, but obviously, people don't, and. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit more because it does seem like, like, in in, and again I'm I'm using these terms in very broad ways, right? But in a like quote-unquote advanced society or whatever, mm-hmm. like, you know, you wouldn't expect that to happen. You you would expect the richest country in the world to be able to provide uh, that medicine for 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 anybody uh, who had the misfortune of getting HIV in the first place, but it doesn't. Right. And I think that that kind of talks to. The point that you're making, but can you can you talk a little bit about how it's still difficult for people to to, to access those drugs, and, and, and why that is? Like, what what part of what part of our uh, society, what part of what communities are having difficulty with that even now?
1: Certainly. So, um, yeah. So, uh, people's uh, familiarity with viruses in this time is very understandably um, primarily influenced by two. Uh, or at least one or two. Uh, COVID, uh, the, the novel coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, which is a respiratory virus, um, and this monkeypox virus, if people are, have been hearing about that. And they're both, like, quite fast acting viruses. Um, the novel coronavirus, uh, will come into your body and either work through your body and leave within, you know, a number of days or a couple of weeks. Um, of course, some people with long COVID might have symptoms for a longer period of time. But for the most part, these viruses come in out of your body quickly, or you know they come into your body unfortunately and kill you, which has happened to a million people in the United States, and and that death process, with few exceptions, is also happening pretty quickly within you know, usually days or weeks, occasionally months, but for the most part days or weeks, um, and so the whole thing happens very fast. And the human immunodeficiency virus, uh, human immunodeficiency virus, is a very slow. Moving virus. Um, once people become infected by it, it will probably take. You know, they, they may have some. They may have some symptoms that are called HIV flu, which is not influenza, but it gives people chills and fever, similar to what you get when you get a vaccine or something. Your body's recognizing something's wrong or something is new there, um, and so the body responds to that. But other than that. People won't have symptoms from HIV for many, many years, um, and it could actually take seven to fifteen years for them to to kill them if they're, uh, you know, if they're not receiving medication. And we've had medications for this that have been very effective since nineteen ninety six. Um, excuse me. The problem is capitalism. You know, the, the medicine's been available. We see this over and over with COVID, with monkeypox, with HIV. That these um, medications become properties for corporations, and they don't want to share them, they don't want to share them between countries. Um, So at one level, it's just greed and capitalism wins out. But the process of getting medicine to people for a virus like HIV is something that has to happen every day for the rest of their lives. And so when people don't have access to safe living conditions over the course of their lives, then that's going to have bad effects in all kinds of ways, but particularly with a virus like HIV. And it's a shame because it has an enormous lead time. Like you have years to, and the longer you go, you should get on medication once you have a diagnosis. So people are seeing doctors regularly, get diagnosed if they get diagnosed early. They go on medication, and all the research indicates they're going to live as long as they normally would with this medication. It doesn't have too many side effects. Um, if you go many years, then there could be more complications, and you don't want to let pe- You don't want to let the virus have an effect on people's immune system to the point that they're having a harder time adjusting to the drugs or letting the lack of immunity start to harm, start to harm them. Um, and so various populations are quite predictably affected by this. It, it overlaps with race, it overlaps with sexuality, um, but as I, I write about in the book, there are very particular modes of how this happens. So for example, incarceration is um, a place where lots of pathogenic transmission happens and people are affected by it and they have bad health outcomes across the board um, and that's quite understandable that w- that would happen in those conditions. Um, but at the same time, it's it's really infuriating that things c- could be done differently. For example, uh, people are not often tested for HIV and they're not given medicine for it quickly. And um, the person I write about in, in my book, he, it was seven months, even though he was arrested because they accused him of having HIV, they obviously knew that he had HIV. Um, and yet they... Took them seven months to give a medicine. And that's a completely common procedure and they're, and the majority of jails don't even test for it. So people who are living with these viruses, um, are getting sicker in jail when they don't need to. And HIV is a really good example. I think people's experiences of this are, are a little mixed because our, the, vac- the vaccines for COVID, are, have had mixed results on this. The vaccine for monkeypox isn't really known yet, but ideally, uh, medications and certain vaccinations stop what's called onward transmission. And the medication for HIV is phenomenal at that. Like, if someone's living with HIV, the medication not only works almost, uh, almost all the time, um, but it also makes them what's called virally suppressant. It makes the viral load so low in their body that they can't give that to other people. So once populations get access to this medication, you see the rate plummet within their social circles and with their populations. With people in jail, for example, if somebody's locked up with HIV, they don't get their medicine, um, then they're gonna have a very high, high viral load, then they go home and that viral load goes into their communities with them. Um, and that's become this like self-fulfilling prophecy. And we see really different racial and class dynamics uh, play out in the United States around this after the medications first come out in the mid 90s. Um, for the most part, white gays largely got the drugs and so that not only helped, their, helped them live longer, but it also just lowered the viral load amongst other white gay people. And black people largely didn't get the drugs and it's because we're less likely to have health insurance, more likely to be homeless, more likely to be incarcerated. Um, more likely to be poor. And so the risk level changes a great deal and the viral load moves up in community. that viral load actually went up in black uh, communities after there were medications available um, because there was just very little access to it. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why we see these same kinds of groups, people who are incarcerated, people who are disabled, um, people who are gay, You know, some of, some of it has to do with the particularities of the viruses in their lives but for the most part, people who are structurally meant to be poor and stuck and structurally made to have um, lower uh, access to medication and safe housing are just going to be more sick with infectious disease, and that happens again and again and again.
0: Yeah, I think you know um, I, I, I think that talking about incarcerated people uh, is is a good way to kind of shift a little bit toward uh, talking. About COVID specifically, because we saw, like, you know, it, it, during the, especially during the early days of the pandemic, um, the way that the virus spread through jails and prisons, um, and the treatment of, of people who were incarcerated there, uh, it, the, the lockdowns, the, the lack of treatment. Um, I don't know if you've heard about the uh, the treatment of people in uh, the Bristol County Jail in Bristol County, Massachusetts that's Thomas Hodgson this guy yes. is notorious right so there's so there's been um, there's been a a lawsuit has been filed uh, about the treatment of uh, uh, immigrant detainees I don't want to call them inmates because they're not they're like they're being held for immigration violations but it's not exactly the same thing Although Hodgson and his people treat them equally or worse, um, but there was um, there, there was like kind of a mini riot which was basically kind of you know started uh, by the sheriff and his, uh, his men um, kind of attacking people but because they were so fed up with their mistreatment uh, during COVID and I think that on and like you know they were just kind of penning them in and they weren't really taking care of them at all. Um, I think it is kind of important to look at this stuff. Uh, in that context where, you know, for a lot of people who were incarcerated uh, when COVID was sweeping through these facilities, uh, they were just really uh, treated terribly. And as, as you would expect, just kind of penned in, not really uh, given treatment. Um, I'm sure that the full extent of what happened, I mean, we still don't really know. I'm sure that that's going to be coming out over the next few years. But uh, you know, when you kind of look at that treatment uh, during this uh, kind of Unprecedented uh health crisis that COVID was like we we hadn't seen anything this this fast moving that that, that did such damage in, in in such a long time. Yeah. Um What like what 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 did you see when you were kind of looking at that as as somebody who you know is 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 studying this is writing about this? You're somebody who's paying attention to this. What like what what was your kind of your takeaway from watching this happen, like other than just like the kind of abject horror, right. Yeah. Of watching it happen. But, but what, what was your kind of more academic take on it? Like, do you think that it, uh, did it reinforce your point? Did did it, did it take your point to a different level? Um, did, did it change the way that you thought about some of this stuff? Maybe.
1: Um, I don't know how much it, ch- yeah, I don't, I would like to think I learn, <laughs> but I don't know how much of it changed, uh, on this point. But like prisons are a really good thing to talk about and and to think about people's frustration with uh, the, the two party system and, and sort of the structure of the United States because they're a constant um, across American history in particular over the past few decades and so I became very I, I've you know, I, a lot of my book and the the reporting on HIV I was doing took place in prisons I was you know interviewing my subject in jail I was trying to negotiate communicating with him in jail um, and I'd had a fair amount of in, in my Graduate work and other places. I've I've taught in prisons a couple of times, Um, and so there there are these relatively predictable ways that you know that people who are incarcerated are going to have health disparities. Um, I think when something is perhaps the virus, HIV, as I said, is like is actually it's not that hard. It's not that easy of a virus to um, to transmit. It's it's relatively inefficient. There are all kinds of problems for it moving between people. It still, of course, finds a way. But compared to something like SARS-CoV-2, that's an extremely casually transmitted virus. And so it felt pretty predictable about what was going to happen. Um, and I think that the the jails were a real way that I really started understanding what was happening with COVID, because the first person in my outer social circle, who I'd only met once, but she was very close to... Um, a number of my friends, you know, the first person I knew who died in our, our circle was someone who had been in jail. She lived very close to a jail um, and her work, she was a, a trans Latin um, uh, activist. You know, her work was very much about trying to get people out of jail. Even as she was dying of COVID, she was engaged in her ongoing, her na- name is Lorena Borjas. Um, she was engaged in her ongoing work of trying to bail people out of Rikers because she thought like, this is a date she, she was always trying to bail people out of Rikers, but Particularly, even in those early days of COVID, like she knew that that people who are locked up in Rikers Island, the jail here in New York, which similar to how you're pointing out, people have been convicted of nothing; they're just being held in pretrial detention, and they're being held because they're they're too poor to post bail. Um, and Lorena knew like this was going to be a dangerous place for people to be during this pandemic. And lo and behold, Rikers is one of the, you know, most deadly engines of. Um, of COVID, COVID transmission and COVID death of, of any facility of its kind in the country, um, and so it it feels annoying and scary that it's predictable that that's going to happen, um, and you can see it in these other ways that are not technically infectious, right? Like Rikers is also the island; it was the jail, one of the jails with the most suicides or so-called suicides. It's one of the jails with the most violent uh, deaths that happen in all kinds of ways at the hands of guards between different people who are incarcerated. Um, So when you see these facilities that are engines for violence and engines for ill health, of course, they're going to, uh, you know, they're they're going to be able to transmit these casually transmitted respiratory viruses too. Um, And something that, that I think it just made it more clear for me is understanding, you know, how and why it is that the Democrats We'll end up in these situations where they're um, presiding over more deaths. You know, more people have died under Biden than under Trump of COVID. And at times the rates are different. Biden's been president longer, but Biden's also had the vaccine. Trump didn't really have the vaccine in his tenure. um, And so there shouldn't be more deaths now, unless you look at like, what are the things that the Democratic Party and governments under them do to Contribute to the conditions under which these things happen, um, and when you think of it that way, when you look at Biden is asking for a hundred thousand more cops, a hundred thousand more cops, you know, means money not going to COVID. Biden has completely failed, even though he does control. They try to pretend like they don't, because imagine and cinema. But you know, his party does control the House and the Senate, and they utterly failed to pass a fifteen, $15 billion dollar bill. For ongoing COVID treatment, which would have included paying for people who are uninsured, people who are uninsured right now cannot get free tests and treatment in most states, and not, not certainly not paid for by the federal government. Um, so that's contributing to the pandemic. And yet they have endless money. It seems like to send the Ukraine. Biden's asking for thirty-seven billion dollars to hire more cops. That's money that's not going to housing and health care and treatment that would make people safer for COVID. And then it's also actively being used to put more people in jail, which actively kicks up COVID. So when you look at how uh, Andrew Cuomo in New York, Gavin Newsom in California, you know, these are all blue state governors Um, They also have these enormous prisons in their states, and those prisons are enormous engines for COVID. They could become engines for monkeypox. There's certainly long been engines for influenza and hepatitis B and hepatitis C. Um, So I I feel like that was like one of the things I learned the most in this process academically was learning how to see what it was that democratic governance and liberalism has done at a structural level. The Democrats did come in trying more than the Republicans to get people vaccinated and do these things, um, but they're not doing, or they're actively making worse a lot of the structural problems that actually drive the epidemic happening. And that just doesn't change very much between administrations. Um, And so these ongoing things keep making it why uh, for the most I can say in the first time, the first time in the past couple hundred years that the U.S. is coming out on top um, in these infections. We have the most monkeypox infections in the world right now. We've far and away had the most COVID infections and COVID deaths. Um, and that is, you cannot delink that from the fact that we also spend the most on cops, put the most people in prisons um, and have one of the worst healthcare systems in the world, of the developed world.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I think let, let's stay on the, on the Democratic response uh, for a little bit, because I do want, you know, I want to get your take on this, because I see this argument being thrown around a lot. Um, and, and I'm curious what your response is, because I think a lot of the time when people make, make the, the very good point, right, that you're making, uh, which is that, you know, we've had more deaths uh, under Biden than under Trump. Um, despite the fact that Democrats have the vaccine, you know they have control of the federal government. So why isn't this stuff getting done? And I think that a lot of the time, the pushback on that, the response, right, is for people to say, "Well, you know, like," and, and setting aside like the bullshit about Mansion and Senator, right? right. But, but people, but people will push back and be like, "Well, you know, like, uh, Trump uh, really put us into this position." Where it was very difficult for the Democrats to do anything about it, A and B, um, you know, the the Republican-controlled states won't do anything, and they're and and they're pushing back on um, on any effort to like get people vaccinated or to take care of this public health crisis. Um, and I and honestly, I think like I think there is a bit of truth to that, but I but I don't think it's the it's the full explanation. I'm curious what your take is on that um, because because it is. It it is a response that does have at least like the kind of staying power uh, where where it does kind of address the issue. It does address the problem to to an extent, and it does bring up an actual uh, uh, a challenge faced I think by by the Democrats when they came in. Um, and, and again, I'm not excusing them at all. I'm just saying that like I'm, I'm curious what your response is to that specific uh, kind of pushback on. On, on this kind of, you know, quantifiable fact that, like, you know, m- more people have died under Biden than Trump.
1: Right. I'm not going to say that the, <clears throat> there, there there are certainly elements of the Democratic Party. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, I just need a little water.
0: No worries, no worries.
1: <clears throat> okay, much better. Um
0: Okay, great, great. All right, go
1: ahead. <laughs> um, you know, there's there certainly elements of the Democratic Party that want to do the right thing. Although I, I find it absolutely perplexing, like I can't think of one national Democrat that's sort of banging the drum on COVID right now, not Bernie, not AOC. Not AOC. Um, and so in some ways there are people in the Democratic Party still who want to, who want to do better on um, these issues. But I've been thinking about a counterfactual, which only has so much, you know, use, but I've been thinking about it and I think it's, it's helpful in this moment. Um, people had said, you know, if Hillary had been in office instead of Trump, things simply wouldn't have gone as haywire and there wouldn't be as much virus in the country. And I, I don't fully believe that because, one, the level of virus in the country has waxed and waned. Um, there's arguably more of it now than there ever has been before. I think we're actually in a more dangerous position than we were a year ago because a year ago deaths were lower and that actually, I think sort of the collective vaccination rate was higher. Um, you know, some more children have gotten vaccinated the past year, but old people's vaccines have drastically waned and they're not getting boosted. So we're slowly becoming a, a less vaccinated country. And that's why we're seeing more, more ICU admissions, more hospital admissions, more deaths than there were at this time a year ago. Um, and so some, you know, a lot of that's responsible with the Democrats, but going back to the counterfactual, you know, if Hillary had been in office, would she have kept things, you know, from getting bad? Well, we have Democrats in right now. Um, some of them I know personally, they're very good people. Uh, they're very smart people and ethical people, you know, working in the White House. I feel like they sort of go and then they're, they like kind of disappear. You don't hear, you don't hear much from them anymore. Um, and this monkeypox situation is absolutely unacceptable and how it's, you know, played out. The Times reported two, three days ago that the three hundred thousand doses the US had bought, they could have had them been distributing, you know, two, three months ago. And I was writing pieces, other people I knew were writing pieces in May and June, um, saying before gay pride, like we have to get people this vaccine because it's going to it's going to start moving quite quickly as it has. Um, and so in that way, I just think the Democrats kind of come across as either incompetent or uncaring. Um, when we see a case study of them dealing with an outbreak that is should have been far e- far easier to control, uh, it's affecting a relatively small percent of the population, and it simply does not have the aerosol transmission rate like COVID. And yet they've like bungled this. Um, and they're probably going to, you know, they're trying to fix it after the fact. But again, like they don't the, the the argument you're bringing up, um, yes, Trump was a cartoon, and the Republicans can be vicious. Uh, and putting aside the bullshit of mansion and cinema, um, but at the same time, like the Democrats keep creating these confluence conditions of which this kind of shit happens. Um, you know, a lesson that could have been learned, and, and in a way that I would say, hey, Biden did a very very different job than Trump um, would have been one if he created universal healthcare, which of course he had absolutely no intention of doing, or two, even at a tactical level, if if they had studied the way that the United States got out up to 4 million shots a day of the COVID vaccine, which was a remarkably impressive feat, um, but done incredibly on the fly with the volunteer labor of millions and endless sort of jerry-rigging and duct tape and prayer and spit. Um, but if they would sort of looked at that and said, like, how can we make that permanent or semi-permanent so we can keep distributing boosters, they could have made a system where every three months or four months, like, you go to the Javits Center, or its equivalent to another place in the city, and you get your COVID booster. And once a year, you go to that place and you get your influenza booster. And, oh, we see that there's a monkeypox outbreak in these cities. There's right now a meningitis outbreak in Florida. You could use that sort of infrastructure to deliver this stuff, but the Democrats don't even see that as worthy infrastructure to pay for in the long term. They're still doing a lot of disaster response, um, like Democrats do. And the the Times report about the decision making, which is absolutely furious around the, the monkeypox vaccine, was that they were basically like, "Let's take a wait and see approach whether or not we should spend money on these distributing these vaccines already that we're going to buy." Um, even though every public health person knows that you just get exponentially more bang for your buck by administering vaccines early when you are potentially stopping hundreds or thousands of cases rather than when that vaccine is only addressing one of those hundreds or thousands of cases later
0: i mean it's just it's it's just so like insane to me that that there's that that they think about it in that way right that they're like okay well we we want to make sure that we don't like Spend money on vaccinating people more than we need to. Right? right. <laughs> it's, like, it's, like, it's like like what's the cost benefit here? Like, like, how, like, I, and, and it, we're, we're, I think it talks a little. And I, I, I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about this like confluence of conditions that the Democrats create for this stuff because I think that's like a great, a great example of it, right? Where it's like. It, this shouldn't come to this like like this is a this is a philosophical ideological debate right that the Democrats are having with themselves like nobody else gives a shit about this. People, like they just want things to get done and it's just it's just completely like ass backwards um, in in a way that that uh, I, I think that I think the part of it I mean I, I don't know a hundred percent, but I, I think that a part of it is that they're trying to have like some level of consistency because they think that that matters. As opposed to like their opponents who just don't give a shit and just will yeah. say whatever they want whenever they want. But I think in this case, like right, like that is like one of the one one of those conditions, right? That that sets us up for this 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 um, fetishization of of, um, of 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 trying to make sure that we only spend money. Like like they're trapped in this like box where they think that people still care about that. Like nobody's really ever cared about that. Right. <laughs> but but they do, and and it's just. Uh, they just keep on like trapping themselves in, in this really, uh, in in this framework that nobody else is like, is, 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 is using.
1: Yeah. It's, um, there's some things like, I just don't understand politically. I I understand the power of lobbyists and sometimes I wonder like, how come Genios, I always forgot to pronounce it, the manufacturer of this vaccine, um, I understand, like, why can't their lobbyists pressure them to spend money <laughs> earlier on this? <laughs> like, you know, there's a corporate interest there, um, and I don't know why that can't happen. Um, and things do move in the wrong direction. I, I've been also thinking that the Democrats are very close to what I call gay ink, you know, the gay organizations that have a lot of influence and power. And they have tepid, if any, Real influence with the Republican Party, um, they don't actually give across party lines. Those organizations, the way that business interests do, they're really tied to the Democrats. Um, and so I just find it very strange that, like, they, they own, you know, they should own some part of the Democrats as lobbyists because they give them a lot of money. Um, but the movement was happening in the wrong direction. There was a, a White House press release that announced a couple weeks ago that GLAD, which is the large gay media organization, um was going to give was like asking people to basically share what the white house the information the white house had and the white the information was useless at that point like gay men are ready to get this vaccine that's the thing that needs to happen we need to get vaccinated and we need to get medication for people are treated of course they're not even taking up the rather obvious matter of uh how a 21 day monkeypox quarantine which is the minimum that's required is an, an obliterating economic reality for anyone who can't work for twenty one days and the people who are most likely to be affected, quite like COVID, are people doing face to fake work. The you know the GoFundMe's I see for gay people who need help are bartenders and sex workers and, you know, people who work in clubs and they don't get to work from home. Um, and the federal government's just the, under the Democrats has left them hanging when we should be paying, you know, we should not only be paying people, of course, who are sick to stay home, but Also, like, if you had a known exposure, this would be a good, this would be good paying for your buck to pay people to stay home until they've been able to get tested. Um, And so the Democrats don't even take any of that up. But with the gay organizations, they were not, this was the moment where I thought they, they should have influence with the gay politicians and be able to be pressuring them to do things like get those fucking vaccines into the country, you know, months earlier than... Um, than the Democrats chose to, and so I don't like quite understand how the lobbying that is still so bad, even at that level, that um, that they're being reactive after the fact when uh, the Democrats are are already allowed to screw so much up. Um, this was a, a the monkeypox situation following or overlapping with COVID is has both like difficult and good things that people are hyper aware of viruses right now that creates, you know, some overreaction, but certainly people are very aware of it. And there was no issue getting people at risk to take this vaccine. Everyone I know is clamoring for it. Um, a little bit to my surprise, even though the, the vaccine infrastructure has been dismantled around so much of the country, there are, um, you know, public, the public health systems in New York city, San Francisco, Washington, Chicago, Los Angeles places like this mobilized quite quickly to be to be able to get the vaccines into people. Um, The issue was just they didn't have them, and I had thought for a while the Democrat. I thought that the federal government didn't even have the ability to get them, and so I was extremely furious when I found out the Democrat. Like they already had them, they they just didn't want to spend the money yet, Um, or you know, put the effort into doing it, and. I can't really explain why that is, but I do think that it knocks out the claim that Trump, for all his cartoonish ways, would have, you know, created a situation so differently than a Democrat might have been, because our underlying economic and social structures of the country don't change that much between administrations.
0: Yeah, I think I think you know my, my only like push, and, and again, like this is a counterfactual, like you said, right? But like my only pushback to that is that. Trump did uh, uh, defund the, the the pandemic preparedness stuff that Obama had set up, and I don't know if, um, if if Clinton or any any replacement level Democrat would have would have done that. I would say that that would be the one thing, right? That 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 would that might have been a difference. But um,
1: that's very but, fair. Yeah, no, that that's fair.
0: But 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 that's I mean, but see, here nor there. Like like that's not the situation that we're in. Uh, we're in the one that we are. I'm gonna read um, a a, a comment here from from Mike and I I I also want to say you know we got about like 15-20 minutes left here Um, so uh, if uh, you know anyone uh, wants to call in or anything please get in the queue but but let me let me just read this this is from Mike and I think this is uh, he, he sent this about like 10 minutes ago I think this is an interesting comment because I think this does sum up the way that a lot of people are feeling I think this is kind of cross-ideological from liberal to left, I think, and and maybe even some conservatives who are taking this stuff seriously, um, like this frustration. So he says, I feel like it's hard to not have anger towards those that simply had no interest in wearing PPE, given that they could afford it, slash it was provided for, Mm -hmm. i.e. masks, etc. I think... And and I think just to be clear, like he's saying, like, you know, for, for those that could like right. to not do it. Right. Um, but but on the flip side, I definitely understand hesitancy for anyone in a marginalized community to want to adopt wearing something like a mask just because there's given instruction for the government where this government has historically never treated them very well. And I think that that is like that is a good point. Right. Because there 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 is some um, has. And, and I don't think this is just I don't think this is this is something uh, that's relegated to any one community right like there is like a mistrust of the government right mm-hmm. now in a way that i think that there hasn't been like, that there wasn't maybe like 30 40 years ago um and so i i i wonder what you think about that uh you know this 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 feeling of like on the one hand like this this frustration but on the other hand like this feeling of like i like i do understand kind of where that's coming from
1: well uh, you know someone who's trained as a social scientist there are Consequences to the way we socialize and they don't disappear overnight. And so people have distress for all kinds of reasons. I think one of the biggest ones that we have dealt with in the past few years um, is not only sort of a hypocrisy and you know, seeing Biden with COVID and the Oval Office with his staff and photographers still not wearing a mask. Uh, you know, there's sort of that level of it. Um, but I think that one of the things that is hardest in the United States is that there's like a complete distrust of the medical system and, and that overlaps with government. It's also private. Um, and I think that we've been really burned by the fact that, okay, now, you know, there are free, they are free vaccines. Um, but if you're a person who it, sometimes you would go to get your free vaccine, this happened to me some, and some, or you'd go get a COVID test. This happened to me sometimes, not others where they asked me for my insurance card and they're both saying it's not going to cost me anything, but they also want my insurance information. Well, if you're somebody who's, ever used insurance and gotten a surprise bill, you're gonna be really suspicious of that. And you know, like and if you've ever gone to a hospital and thought that you were in the right network and with the right doctor, but then you find out the anesthesiologist wasn't in network and you get a bill for hundreds of thousands of dollars, and you're suddenly told something is free, but you're being asked for an insurance card, that causes suspicion and it drives people from even engaging with the system in the first place. Cause the the medical system is one of harm for so many people that they, they would just rather avoid it, understandably. Um, and I think that we also got into a really dangerous situation when we're asking people to do something for other people, which is not a bad thing. I'm, I'm for that. Um, but again, like if you are the kind of person who got a cancer diagnosis and you're basically told, well, you're on your own because that's not going to infect anyone else. You know then, when an infectious disease come on and you're asked to do something um, that will benefit other people, you don't have as much motivation to do so. You know, if you've been left for dead with your own medical crisis, um, and you know that you're still going to be left for dead if it doesn't fit into a certain category, you lose a lot of um, goodwill. so it's is not a situation that's entirely you know to the United states. I, I do some research in Greece on HIV and hepatitis um, and also now a little bit on COVID. And they have a national health system and they have enormous um, vaccine hesitancy. And there are other countries in the world that have vaccine hesitancy. Sometimes it's similar. Sometimes the political dimensions are um, not transferable. They, they're you know particular to uh, one country or another. Um, but unlike you know, the United Kingdom, who simply does not deal, they, they, they don't deal with the possibility that you are going to get healthcare and be in debt for the rest of your life um and so like my friends there who and they also make a lot of things a lot easier even if it takes time my friends there who are getting monkeypox vaccines they just call up their it's called surgery their you know their doctor their local surgery and they say they need it and then they just schedule them for the next time it's available there's no hunger game sign up there's no you know like gnawing at the bit to get in front of other people they just say okay your date is in three weeks and that's that and there's not going to be any surprise bill um The countries in the world that have had the best response to this pandemic are the ones that have trust between their medical systems and the people living in them. And so some of them are, you know, quote unquote, economically advanced countries like South Korea, which has had um, relatively low rates of sickness, even though they've had times where they've spiked in cases, but they've still had very low hospitalizations and deaths. Um, And they've had very few mandates, but they have continuous communication and there's a general they do have a universal healthcare system, although it has a little cost to it, but it's very manageable. Um, But they've had continuously good conversation between public health people and the public, and they generally trust one another. um, And that goes a long way. And then there's some very poor countries in the world, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia, where um, the countries have had a long experience with public health And there's research that shows that the percent of your country's budget on health, whether it's going to prevention versus emergency medicine, is a really big predictor in getting buy-in to public health campaigns around something like COVID. So certain countries in... Central Africa, that could be very poor, but have had decades of public health experience around prevention, where even people in very poor communities, like they know the public health prevention people, they've helped them, there's no fee at the point of service. Um, that's all been um, pretty fine. And they are able to get buy in and they've had relatively low rates. And then you have a country like the United States where it's all emergency uh, reactive debt, creating stuff done at the back end, Um, and there's very little buy-in and people don't want to, you know, they're, they're much less likely to listen to what healthcare providers tell them because they have no relationship with them. Um, they, they haven't seen these people around for a long time and they know that if they engage with them, they could end up with a huge medical bill.
0: Yeah, 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 definitely. Definitely. Um, that's a, very exhaustive and, and comprehensive uh, reply. To that I hope I hope that I hope that works uh, for for Mike there. Um, Lauren says I'm not looking forward to the next school year with monks, monkeypox being a new variable. I think that's a really uh, good point. Um, that you know uh, it, it's it you know we've seen how COVID has affected and shut down uh, schools around the country um, and and how that kind of response has been I think kind of. Flawed on a lot of levels. Like from the beginning, I think that it's been kind of a, from 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 my perspective, it seemed like kind of just like a, a patch, a, a patchwork of, of of a response. Um, uh, but but yeah, I mean like this is just another thing now, right? Like this is another and and, and taking 21 days off of either teaching or being in the classroom uh, when you're, when you're already having to handle you know a potential. Covid outbreaks really seems like uh, just just another kind of unbearable stress. Um,
1: well, I wouldn't worry know. at this point. Conditions can change, which are my favorite three words in public health. Um, but I wouldn't I wouldn't panic about monkeypox in that capacity right now. I certainly think that we need you know universal paid leave for teachers or you know or um, caregivers or parents who have to stay home and take care of people. Um, the, the movement of this pandemic has been so much within particular contact and then it has not been moving that, you know, that onward. There've been two juvenile cases that I know of in the United States. Um, but they're under, they're pediatric, which means they're being probably babies being held very, very closely. Um, I don't think that it's, it's probably going to be a situation where it's just sort of moving in classrooms, the way that it's moved through amongst men who are having sex with other men. Um. It could move in college campuses if there's sort of sexual networks within people, but I think it is really important. And I understand why why this is a difficult distinction to make, um, given the enormous influence that COVID has had in our life and the the unacceptably high death toll it's had. Um, but these viruses are not moving at all sort of in the same speed and the same scale. And I think it can be sort of scary to see a rapid rise um, in a chart uh, amongst a, a virus that's moving more through the, it's its moving through a very particular network in a very particular way. And there's going to be some spill off from that, um, but it's not going to move the way that COVID has moved and interrupted our lives. And, and that's not to say that it shouldn't be taken seriously and dealt with seriously. It should, um, but I don't think that it's going to have the, it's not going to have anything like the, the sort of effect that COVID has had. And, um, and if people are worried, as I've seen people say, oh my God, I'm going to start wearing a mask again because of monkeypox. I'm like, you don't need it for that. You need it for COVID. <laughs> like there's the, no, we're, rep- we're at rapid uh, record level of community transmission of COVID. So keep wearing that mask for that reason, but um, try not to make yourself worry too much about monkeypox unless you are um, within the demographic that's dealing with it the most right now
0: absolutely and i and I think um it, so we we have one more uh, comment here I want to read, and i think i think we'll we'll wrap after that but um and this is kind of going off of off of the monkey posse. and this is from about fifteen minutes ago, so it is referring a little bit to the conversation we were having about the politics around this, But mm-hmm. I do think that it 's kind of good to bring it back here uh, and and this comment writes, I'd rather quote waste money in close quote on having a bunch of people vaccinated than waste money on actual ways like the military and cops, tax cuts for the rich, and corporate subsidies. Personally, especially seeing as monkeypox has shown ability to be spread through the air, um, and and you know like like whether or not um, you're in the demographic or not, I mean I, I think that that is kind of hard to argue with, right? Like uh, we're we're in a situation where we have a growing pandemic, and even if the demographic that is being most affected by it is is a relatively small portion of the population. I don't think that really matters, right? Like, like it should really be about protecting public health. And if the money's there, uh, you should spend it. But the priorities again, don't really seem to be there. I'm just kind of curious what you think about like that comment and that kind of frustration that, that I think kind of really, uh, kind of spans political and and partisan. Uh, uh belief right like there there is a real frustration i think uh to both the response to covid and now um and, and what may be the response to monkeypox and, and 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 any number of other uh public health issues where uh the government's is is very easy to spend money on on these uh relatively unpopular programs but when it comes to like taking care of people they're, they're simply not interested
1: yeah, I think those are all really good points. And I've tried to be explicit in thinking about, um, talking about COVID primarily moving through sexual transmission between men who have sex with men, um, which has been the case in 98 Monkeypox. 90... I'm sorry, thank you, thank yep. you, sir, thank you. Oh, Monkeypox. Um, uh, to understand, like, that's where it should be. Uh, that's where the, the focus of the resources should be right now, um, both to, to keep panic from happening where it shouldn't, but also to like deal with the community I'm a part of that's suffering very badly. I have a number of friends who've had it. it. sounds extremely painful. And like almost every gay man I know as well, I've had like the mental anguish of thinking, mate, do I have it or not? Um, which is worth dealing with. And I I do want to push back against a narrative, which I'm not saying your comments are made or you made, um, but I've seen a fair amount that there's this idea like, oh, you know, we need to deal with this, before it moves into the general population. Well, no, it's like worth dealing with now because it's hurting people now. Um, and just because it's it's a group that I, that often ends up in this viral underclass I talk about, um, it. it's worth dealing with right now. And your commenter I think was absolutely right. It's not, like it's not wasted money to spend money keeping people from getting sick. You know, you, you should use more vaccines than you need to stop an outbreak from happening. Um, you know, absolutely. Absolutely. In the same way, we should not say like a negative COVID test was a waste of money. No, like we need to know right. that information. Right. <laughs> um, right.
0: And 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 I do and actually that. So that commenter is 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 here about to call in. So I'm going to take that in a second. But I, I you know, I do just want to say that I don't think that uh, the intention was to say that we shouldn't do it because uh, it's it's only affecting this this. this no, no. No. Yeah, no. Yeah. No. I. Do it. Should yeah. do it no matter who is affected. It's very easy. Just like, yeah. No, um, no. I, I
1: did hear that, and I and I thank you for pointing that. I just I have seen, a, a, you know, I've seen the sentiment as well. Like, oh, you know, we it 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 could end up in other people, and um, no, like it's it's worth doing now. So thank you. Absolutely.
0: So let's so let's take let's take the caller uh, call just if you could just uh, uh keep it pretty tight just because we're we're running up on time here. Uh, but go ahead.
2: Hey, thanks for taking my call. Really quick, um, Dr. Thrasher, I want to uh, thank you for taking your time here today. I appreciate what you had to say. Um, I, I do just want to point out, I don't think it's a good idea to talk about monkeypox as being strictly something that's only affecting the gay community right now. I know that's a lot of narrative that I'm seeing. I've seen it in multiple like mainstream like scientific websites like science.org and uh, different publications have been talking about how to spread right now has been through MSM communities, men having sex with men. I, I think that's a, a terrible mistake because we know that we're not properly and we have not been adequately funding testing and tracing and all of that. Um, we know that um, our, our public health are kind of, it's kind of like a selection bias where we're only looking for in those communities. That's not so a that, cool. yeah, that's, but it's, so that's course, not actually true there's it that... there but it, it, it's it's creating this stigma i feel like again and we're already seeing the right wing like marjorie taylor green already was like well if this is just an sti that affects gay people why are we seeing a couple cases in children they're already doing the thing where they're trying to imply gay people are groom are groomers and i i just think that's uh, All right. Uh, well, let's, uh, uh, yeah.
0: Let's, let's, let's let let's let let us let 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 Doctor. Thank uh, thank you for the call. Let's let uh, let's let Doctor. uh respond. To that.
1: So the question about confirmation bias. There's actually been a fair amount of research already looking at um, at the positivity rate of people who are being tested, and, and uh, broadly, half of men who have been tested are testing positive, which means that they're um, coming in because they have symptoms. And it's been about one percent of women and less than uh, less than one percent of children. Um so we don't have a real problem with confirmation bias. This this virus presents in a way unlike COVID and HIV with extremely obvious symptoms at some point, so it's not as difficult there. Um and people disagree with me on this. I think, you know, I've studied sexually transmitted infections for a lot of my career. I've never before really encountered the idea that just because hepatitis or HIV or potentially monkeypox are sexually transmitted that doesn't mean that we're dealing with them in other ways. Um And the overwhelming number of cases are being dealt with or being transmitted in this way right now, although that can change a little bit. But certainly this is where the most risk is for the time being. And the attacks that come from the right are going, I've dealt with this in writing about Michael Johnson and writing about HIV and AIDS and incarceration, all kinds of things in my life. They're going to make those charges anyway. So I don't think that we should be afraid of naming something that is true, and the work of undoing stigma, like being sick, being gay, becoming infected with the disease, there's nothing bad about that, and there's really important work to do to undo stigma and undo homophobia. Um, but that does not happen at the level of sort of naming what's happening. That is dealt with at the level of getting people the healthcare they need, the education they need. I'm working on a piece right now where I think one of the disasters of this is it shows that like we don't have sexual education, let alone queer sexual education, um, so that people can take care of their bodies in the long term. And that's where I think those kinds of issues need to get hashed out more than whether or not we talk about how transmission is actually occurring.
0: Absolutely. Well, um, thank you so much for uh, for joining. Like I said, it's it really great to to finally uh, uh, talk, uh, quote, in person, yes. kind <laughs> of, I guess. Um, so, uh, again, uh, the Viral Underclass, it comes out next week, right?
1: Yep, on Tuesday. And on if Tuesday. anyone's in New York, our, our mast and vast uh, launch party will be at the Strand in New York on Tuesday evening.
0: Excellent, excellent. So, um, so be sure to get that. Dr. Stephen Thrasher, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, thanks to the callers. Thanks to the commenters. Um, if you are listening here live or on replay on the app, please be sure to subscribe and follow if you're listening uh, on syndication on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or now on Google Podcasts, uh, please be sure to follow, like, subscribe, do all of the differently named things that all do the same thing on uh, those platforms. So uh, thanks, everybody. And uh, we'll see you tomorrow. Um, uh, we'll have Aaron Thorpe is going to come on and talk about the news a little bit. So thanks again uh, to, to Dr. Thrasher. And uh, we'll talk soon, guys. Bye.
2: Bye-bye.